when dog owners see how effective positive reinforcement-based dog training can be, they often ask us at School for the Dogs, will this work on my spouse? They might think they're asking a silly question, but they're not. Dog training techniques rooted in the science of behavior will work on people, and I've written a little ebook on the subject that you can get for free at schoolforthedogs.com people. I promise I do not suggest anything that involves feeding your human loved ones milk bones. I hope this primer on positive reinforcement and how to use it with people and set up our learners for success will leave you wagging your proverbial tail. Check it out in the show notes or find it at schoolforthedogs.com people. today by Iona Lee Bragna, one of the very most recent graduates of our professional course. When she is not training, she is often at the front desk at School for the Dogs and mans our inbox. Her official title is Admin Assistant and Client Coordinator. Iona Lee, though, something I've, I've wanted to ask you since I've met you and I've never asked you is tell me about your name because I've never met an Iona Lee before. Um, so it's a variation on my grandmother's name, which was Ion Space Lee, and my parents smushed that together um, so that my middle name could be my other grandmother's name, which is Carol. Um, oh, and what yeah. is I? Is Ion a kind of? Is is that a name from somewhere? Yes, it's Scottish actually. Oh, okay. Which is ironic because I'm mostly. Italian and Mexican, but um, <laughs> but your grandmother was Scottish, yes, and her name was Ione, yes. Well, it's very pretty. Um, although it's it's I've noticed, and I'm guessing you've noticed in your life, people uh, refer to you sometimes as lonely. Yes, I get lonely a lot. I like to tell uh, tell marketers that I'm not lonely. I do have friends. Which is why a lot of times I'll just sign my name fully in lowercase. Well, anyway, it's a beautiful name. And um, yeah, so I wanted to uh, have you on today um, to hear about your journey into the world of dog training. Because as as I know, and as those of us on other, other people on staff know, you started out with us uh, as a client, then started working for us uh doing work at the front desk and now have graduated our apprenticeship program and um, we are obsessed with you and we're not ever going to let you go anywhere. <laughs> um, but how did you how did you end up at our doorstep? So actually I found School for the Dogs through this podcast. Um, oh. When I, I'd put, I, with, with Parker's Breeder, I'd put in a deposit so that I could join the wait list to get a puppy and I, it, Parker is the first dog I've raised completely on my own. And so I was looking for resources for 
what dog training in New York City was like. Because, you know, I've raised dogs and horses in rural Massachusetts, but New York City is a completely different experience. Um, so I, when I was looking around, this was one of the few podcasts about dog training in an urban environment. And so months before I even got him, I started listening to the podcast just to kind of prepare myself because, you know, being a young 20 something in a very small, uh, Queen's apartment, I was kind of like, I have to be prepared because this could go south very quickly. And so this podcast was very helpful to introduce me to marker training. Um, It helped me um, socialize him on the subway and it helped me start his leash walking before I even started with, um, you know, private training and puppy kindergarten with School for the Dogs. I really did use the podcast to kind of understand, you know, how to set him up in the crate and be comfortable and how to introduce him to the outside world. And it just helped me start without being completely lost. Wow. Well, I'm really flattered to hear that. Glad to hear that. Are there Were there any episodes in particular that you remember if, if someone's new to the podcast that maybe we can help point them to? It's all a blur to me. <laughs> um, in season one, you have a lot of how-tos, you know, with, um, you know, how do dogs learn and how does marker training work and how to leash walk and how to potty train. And so a lot of times with clients when they're like, hey, you know, I want to set up um, a lesson with a trainer, but I also kind of need help right now. I'll I'll send them to the podcast or, you know, now we have some amazing uh, reels on Instagram for a lot of the basic stuff too. And so I'm like, you know, there's nothing like, you know, getting that one-on-one experience you get like a get from a trainer, but we also try to help people as much as we can with these other resources. And so they're always worth a listen or a look. I think I think that's really good advice. I mean, I think of it like, um, I mean, I think of so much of dog training, honestly, as similar to working with a personal trainer. Like, there's so much about exercising that you can learn on your own, and plenty of people go far. Um, but it can also be helpful to have a person to work with to give you some structure that you might not be imposing or to on yourself or to give you techniques or ideas that you wouldn't know about and to um to you know keep you accountable um so if if this podcast has helped people in that way yeah i'm always trying to um uh point people towards our our free and low-cost resources because in order to run a business in new york city like we have to charge, uh, you know, a pretty penny, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that, um, you know, we're still not able, I hope, to help uh, people who are paying paying less or, or in the case of the podcast, <laughs> nothing, nothing at all. Um, so you, you're from rural Massachusetts. Um, how did you end up in New York City? I, I moved to New York City to work in book publishing. Um, I moved uh-huh. in 2018 to attend the Columbia Publishing course. Oh, um, right. And then from okay. there, I had um, some internships with literary agencies, and then I was working at an agency for a while. Um, 
So that's that's how I ended up in New York. And did you did you dream of becoming an agent? I did. I did. Um, my my mother's an agent. That's why I'm particularly interested in this. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, but she's an agent for illustrators, but similar world. Oh, that's really cool, actually. Um, I'm particularly passionate about um, children's literature, but yeah, I I was fired from my agency job um, due to communication issues during the pandemic, and I I like to joke that it was actually a blessing because that was a boss who believed in positive punishment for her Ah. employees. (laughs) So it wasn't necessarily the best job for me at the end of the day. She she was not a good dog trainer? No, she was not a good dog trainer. (laughs) Isn't it interesting to think of, isn't it interesting to think of, uh, all of your past jobs, knowing what you now uh, uh, work with every day about um, classical conditioning and operant conditioning? It is. It is interesting because, um, you know, a, a job is so much a, a working and learning environment where you're you're trying to put your best foot forward and accomplish a lot of goals, but you're also working within a team and there's always a learning curve to every job. And so all of the learning theory that we talk about in the apprenticeship and, you know, we try to apply in dog training very much also impacts, you know, human interaction. Humans are animals that behave and learn in very similar ways to dogs and so it's it's rather enlightening uh, to look back at some of my previous experiences through that lens. And that's part of why I enjoy working at School for the Dogs so much, is it's, it's such a compassionate environment where there's always room for learning and growth. And um, instead of focusing on what went wrong, we try to focus on what to do next time. Yeah, I I very much feel like um, uh, we want to, as a business, we always want to be working towards figuring out how behaviors can be um, positively reinforced as much as possible um, in order to encourage people to, yeah, I mean, feel, feel good about being part of this this thing um uh i think i mentioned this once before on the podcast but uh one time before jason and i got married at the temple we sat down with the rabbi and the rabbi and i guess he was like we were just talking about ourselves and about our you know what we're passionate about in life and i was trying to explain how passionate i am about um about figuring out how to use positive reinforcement as much as possible and just in life with dogs and whatever. And then I, I, I sometimes get frustrated when I feel like others don't understand that, or I forget exactly what I was saying, but he said something about like, but of course, as an employer, you have to use coercion. I mean, um, I thought like, of course I try not to use coercion. And he was like, well, you know, the very act of paying someone is coercive. 
And uh, it just reminded me like of how, how much we misunderstand um, the terms, I guess, is part of it. Um, but understanding the terms helps you understand the co- concept. I mean, I guess withholding someone's pay would would be truly coercive and perhaps in a society where we're all so dependent on our paychecks um especially but anyway blah 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 um (laughs) you 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 went on also to work at the strand is that right yeah so um the strand is another of the jobs i had um out of the columbia publishing course when i was applying for all of the fancy publishing industry jobs i still needed to pay to exist in new york city Um, so I was applying to a bunch of bookstores as well. And I ended up working at the Strand for over a year. And the Strand's a really interesting environment to work in, um, because it's, it's one of the only retail places I've ever worked where... Well, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but to anyone listening who's not in New York, can you explain what the Strand is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Strand is, um, a now landmarked bookstore in Manhattan, which is known for uh, selling used books and having a rare book collection. Um, It's been a New York City staple of the book scene for decades now. Um, It's, it's, you know, it's still a family business, even though it um, uh, has definitely evolved as the city has. Um, there's, There's contention over whether the Strand is still a bookstore or now a tote bag store especially among the employees, <laughs> but, it, but um, it's, it's a really unique place to work. And I learned a lot working there and uh, working among people who've been in New York all their lives and people fresh to the city. It really brought great perspective. Um, and it really uh, working retail for full time, 40 hours a week in a chaotic environment. Um, that's, you know, a, a tourist uh, spot and a landmark definitely um, upped my customer service skills and taught me to think on my feet. So I, I am grateful for that job in many ways. And you're um, very good. You're very good at that, I have to say. You, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's not an easy thing. And honestly, you know, I didn't really work in any kind of uh, service business. I mean, I guess a little bit. Um, you know, I, I worked like at a cafe when I was like a teenager, but it wasn't really until we opened school for the dogs that I realized kind of what it truly meant to work in the service business and to be dealing with like such a volume, like so many people. Like, have you found that when, that dealing with so many people, you sort of start to see like um, just types differently? The th- yeah. I The thing I – always joke about is you can always tell who has worked in the service industry before and who has not uh, when you're working a service job especially um and I almost feel like in some ways everyone should work a service job at one point in their life a hundred percent really really opens your eyes to the world around you and all of the people you connect with every day either intentionally or unintentionally um I think it gives you empathy too. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, so it, it really, it really shows you that you know there's the concept of please and thank you, but then then there's the people who like actually use it. 
um, because they understand what they're asking of you. And so more than knowing types of people, you know, and encountering types of people in the full volume, you, you really see which people understand what life looks like from your end as someone in the service industry and which people don't care. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I feel like what what's comforted me is it's helped me see that like people kind of bring themselves wherever they go and that the person who well, I mean, as you know, working the front desk, like our clients are awesome. <laughs> like, like I think we have like a really I think we have a really self-selecting group of wonderful people who uh, come to school for the dog, shop with us online, all of it. Like, like people are, I, I am, I am wowed by uh, like the people who make up our customers and client base. But like, there's some percentage of people who are difficult. Let's say I think it's probably a smaller percentage though than at somewhere like the Strand and. Uh, but, but I tell myself, like, those people are probably going into every shop or, like, having some sort of issue where every single place they go into. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, and that's exactly what I mean by, you know, types of – you can tell, you know, who who is there just for them and who is there as a part of the bigger picture. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I, you know, working as School for the Dogs, I do think that it, you know, the people interested in the training that we do at School for the Dogs in some way is a self-selecting group of some of the most fantastic people in New York City. Yeah, I I mean, because you have to be interested in it, you have to then kind of... uh, I, I think there's some people who seek it out. And that is definitely a special person who is, I mean, I'm, and was not the person I was, by the way, but it sounds like the person you were when you got Parker. I was not like, I need to train my dog and I need to find the best way to train my dog. And I mean, this was, you know, what, 16 plus years ago, mm-hmm. I guess. But, you know, I, and so it was a different world in a lot of ways. But I was just like, dog training is something one and done. I'm going to find, go to the class at the local daycare and uh, and then he will be trained and that's it I I think I found natural ways to interact with my dog that made sense to me that I enjoyed that he enjoyed um, and some of that certainly involved training um, and I didn't and I never used you know aversives really with him but I, I think that the, there are people who like seek us out and then there's people who just kind of come in and they get it um, and that's really cool to see um yeah. I actually have a background of using aversives with my parents' dog, um, which is part of why it was so important to me to work with School for the Dog and do positive reinforcement training because it's the thing about aversives is it's just so hard to use them right. Um, and, you know, theoretically, there's a right way to use them, but the, the amount of human error that will just exist no matter how hard you're trying really poisons any proper use of aversives in a way that just made me really sick to my stomach. Tell me about it. How did you, what kind of training did you do with, with your dog? Was it your childhood dog? 
right after I graduated college, I was living with my parents, and our childhood dog had passed away a couple years previous. And then had my you done had training. Been, had you done training with that dog growing up? I had, but most of most of my training pre pre my parents' dog George and pre Parker is actually horse training. I rode horses for 15 years um, and competed at a regional level and it was mostly young horses so it was it was a lot of of training and teaching them how riding works so um, which is another interesting story on what makes me the dog trainer I am today but um, my parents dog George we got in 2017 right after I'd graduated college and I was still living in Massachusetts with my parents at the time and um, we'd the previous dog we'd had was a lab, and you know he'd had a full life, and passed from old age. And so, in some ways, you know, you know we'd gotten that dog when I was five, and I'd been involved in his training, but you know not deeply involved. And now, you know, I was an adult. I'd graduated college, and here was this terrier puppy, and going from a yellow lab to an unknown terrier mix. Uh, was definitely a wild ride. Um, and so we realized we needed help. And we contacted one of the trainers in our town, who was a balance trainer. Um, and my mom grew up kind of more from of the like, old um, Caesar Milan-esque dog training school of thought. That's just what she grew up with. And so, you know, to her, balance training made sense. Balance, balance training is theoretically an even mix of positive reinforcement training and positive punishment training with aversives like um, an e-collar, an electric shock collar, or and a prong collar, and an electric fence, which I used all three of them on my parents' dog, George. Um, and the prong collar is hard because theoretically what you're doing is you're walking with a loose leash and only the dog engages the prong collar when they pull. But practically, if you're walking through a crowded place and you're holding the leash tight to try to keep your dog near you and they're wearing a prong collar, there's just nothing good about that picture. You're not training your dog. You're trying to help your dog by keeping them close to you and keeping them safe. But it's just, it sucks for you and the dog, you know? And then the the e-collar we first used for recall and in some ways it made sense in that very specific instance to you know when you feel this sensation run back to me you know when it's that specific the sensation being the the being the shock and um because the shock it was interesting the shock to george was actually less aversive than the vibration which most people think is preferable and i've heard that i've heard that before i I don't know if that's for some dogs one is worse than the other and you might not know until you try it and i'm the sort of crazy person who always tested the shock on my wrist before putting it on my dog you know like the sensitive inner part because you're Mm -hmm. putting it on their neck which is also a very sensitive area and so i always knew it wasn't at a level where i was causing him serious harm because i physically tested it on myself first before putting it on him every single Well, sure, time. although you don't know what his nerves feel like, but sure. <laughs> yeah, but like, but at the same time, it's so easy to say, I'm only going to use this for recall and then be like, and then use it in situations that aren't necessarily a pure recall. And 
And it was at the point where the trainer was trying to get me to use the e-collar to shock him into staying in the crate, where I was just like, I'm out. There's nothing about this that is okay. Um, because it's the that was the antithesis of what crate training should be. You shouldn't scare your dog into staying in a crate. It should be a safe space where they want to be because they're cozy in there. So that was where I was like, none of this. I'm done. (laughs) Now, doing horse training, had you been introduced to anything like clicker training? No, not necessarily. But a lot of it, looking back at horse training, kind of did feel like marker training. Um, Mostly because I always had treats in my pocket. Uh, I, I used the puffy pepper, peppermints because that's what my horse liked and they stayed in their little plastic wrappers and they were in the pockets of everything. The number of peppermints I put through the wash in my life is kind of insane. <laughs> but, and I'm sure, I'm sure most horse people and dog trainers will understand that. They're, they're, you just have food on you always somehow. But, um, so it's like in some ways I was using positive reinforcement training. Um, instances I can think of um, specifically are um, we always when mounting the horse we'd take the horse and line it up at the mounting block and then we'd ask the horse to stand still and as soon as we were on we'd give the peppermint and so you know as long as it was a nice smooth motion and everyone's safe and comfortable you know there's the peppermint um, or and we'd use carrots for stretches. Um, my horse had a lot of back problems, and so I had to do a lot of stretches with him to get him to try to stretch his neck and his sides. And so I'd always get him, you know, just like leaning a little bit further to get the end of the carrot. Um, and I also, this is something funny that I've never heard someone else do, but I trained him to eat his apples in bites because I knew he knew the difference between my fingers and the food, um, and I didn't like being slobbered on. So I'd tell him to, eat, to chew his apple in bites so, so it wouldn't be too much in his mouth and get slobbery everywhere. Oh, that's really sweet. Um, and, you know, it was like, you know, is it you, you don't chew on my finger and I'll twist the apple so that you can get your teeth through and you get your nipple. And then you finish chewing and you get the next bite. And so in a lot of ways, when you break all of these actions down, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of in some ways, almost unintentional mark and reward. It's not as precise as what I've been doing with Parker and the other dogs at School for the Dogs, but it's still very much there. And the interesting thing about horseback riding is there's so much reinforcement that you give unintentionally through your body language. Because when you're on the horse, the horse can feel every muscle on your body. They can feel when you tense they can feel when you relax. And a lot of times, you know, when your horse does something right through your whole body, you have an almost unintentional reaction of, oh my God, we just did the thing. And they can feel that through all of your muscles. So it's almost a praise, an unintentional like praise reinforcement. Right. Or the, well, it's the conditioned, the conditioned reinforcer, probably, you know, that your, your body pressure, um, has has become a learned a learned reinforcer to them. Um, so what what happened with your parents' dog, and did your were your parents on the same page? So I mean, he's 
he's a great dog. He's currently four years old, so he's fairly young still. And um, they still use the e-collar on him. They stopped using the prong and switched to a martingale, thankfully. Um, They really only use the e-collar for recall and forget to charge it most of the time. Um, And he's on an electric fence that they forget to put the collar for him on. So it's, 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 it's a thing where, like, I've tried talking to them about it, but it's hard with family um, to be, especially when, you know, like, I w- was part of setting up that situation because I didn't know differently at that time. So you got Parker. Parker is a miniature schnauzer. Is that right? Yes. Parker is a purebred miniature schnauzer. And he's who I got. The, the cutest, the cutest guy. <laughs> Thank how you. did uh, how did you decide on a uh, on a mini schnauzer? Um, so we'd switched to terriers from labs because my mom has dog allergies, um, and so we wanted to look for some of the less allergenic breeds. And um, a lot of you know the poodles and the terriers, you either strip or give haircuts, and they don't shed the same way, and they don't. Uh, necessarily create dander the same way and so my mom doesn't react to them and so it was a priority to me to pick a dog that you know could be snuggled by every member of the family and could be enjoyed by every member of the family without needing to worry about triggering her allergies which is a large part of why I didn't look into rescues is because I knew that allergies were a big part of the picture um, so I did a lot of research on breeders, um, and I, I went to um, see his breeder, and I met his parents, um, you know, and I learned a lot about how she raises all of her puppies to make sure that I was really, you know, if you're going to be paying top dollar for a puppy, it's really best to do your research so you know that they're coming from an ethical place. Totally. Any any quick tips for anyone? Um. In terms of quick tips, I'd say if uh, if you can, go to the breeder, see where the puppies and the parents are kept, and meet the breeding parents. Um, that's really the best way to make sure that, you know, it's, it's a good home that your puppy is coming from with the best start to life. Totally. And the second thing I'd say is ask your breeder questions about how they're raising and socializing their puppies from day one. Because um, I'm very thankful that my breeder did a lot of um, sound desensitization. You know, she'd play city noises and firework noises um, just while the puppies were sleeping and eating. Just um, And she did a lot of handling, a lot of bathing and grooming um, to really and just set them up for success. So I'd, the, 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 I'd say the two things are meet the parents and then ask the breeder really detailed questions about what the puppy's first few weeks of life look like. Absolutely. Good ones. Good tips. Um, I'll add, read the book, The Dog Merchants. I think that book should be read by anyone, uh, certainly anyone considering getting any kind of dog, but also people who already have dogs because it's just... <clears throat> pretty fascinating about all the different places dogs come from <laughs> in our modern world. Um, so you started out doing uh, with us as a client. Um, tell me about, can you tell me about some of the, your early classes or, you know, how, how, how you trained with us? 
Yeah, so Parker and I kind of zigzagged through classes. I couldn't afford a lot of um, private training, but um, we started, our first interaction with School for the Dog was a private with Erin, who is still one of the best and most awesome puppy trainers. And I was, I've been very grateful to learn from her during the apprenticeship as well. And, she and also, us- also a client turned apprentice turned <laughs> staff person. Yes. That that is also true. There are good there um, are, <laughs> you're you're two fabulous people who who went on that took that path as is Anna, who's another one of my favorite people in the world. So oh, sorry, uh, I interrupted you. No, it's it's fine. <laughs> um uh so Aaron taught us about touch, uh which is one of the I don't know how I'd come into school for the dogs listening to so much of the podcast and not knowing what touch was. But I think I just thought it wasn't important. And now it's one of the most useful things I could ever think of because you can use touch for so many different applications. Um, And so we went from that to puppy kindergarten, which is awesome. And I try to talk every puppy client into taking because it's such a great mix of puppy topics like potty training and, you know, crate training and socialization. And there's also, you know, the the bit of playtime with the other puppies in class. And then you're starting with all the basics like sit and lie down and recall and leash walking at the end. Um, and so, you know, I really am glad that I we got that solid foundation. And then we took tricks one after that, um, which was also with Anna. And so Parker and I were really happy to start taking tricks because he needed um, a little bit more mental activity because he's a very smart uh, schnauzer, as most of them are. Um, and I always try to talk people into tricks training because it's one of the best ways to really build communication with your dog and understand how um capturing and shaping and marker training all work um and so we we learned our our high fives and our waves and our spins and it's also a good studio apartment activity right (laughs) it is it is there's so many benefits from tricks training and it's funny how many clients are like oh well that's just extra and I'm like but it actually impacts your basics because the skills and the precision you need to build tricks helps you build much cleaner basic behaviors as well. Well, and your dog doesn't know that rollover is silly and sitting is important. Exactly. To them, it's all the same thing. And it's it's always fun to watch how much clients enjoy teaching their dog to give a high five because in some ways the pressure's off for them and it's just about the learning activity. And then once you build the communication with behaviors that don't have that weight for the human, you can go back to the obedience and it comes so much faster. That's that's a really great it's a really great point. It's like playing basketball or something in order to build your your I don't know, running capabilities. Exactly. Like there's so much you learn that you know isn't necessarily direct learning or intentional learning, but it it all connects in a way where there's so many clients where I'm like, I know this sounds silly, but please take tricks one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what got you from there to the professional course? Um, I mean, animals have always been something that I've had 
a really strong affinity for. Growing up, my mom always used to call me Snow White because every time we visit friends or family, I'd always be in the corner with whatever pet was there. I was always that person. And growing up, I I joke that um, um, animals are comfortable around me because growing up, I just spent more time engaging with them than with humans. And so my natural body language is really loud from all the days <laughs> that I spent just sitting with my horse instead of sitting with people. You know, because... <laughs> animals don't have words so it's like every movement of your hands every tightening of your shoulders it means so much to them so I've always especially with anxious animals and animals of stranger danger I've always been the the human where they're like uncommonly fast just like oh you're fine because my body language is so loud for them that they can understand where they stand with me and what my intentions are way quicker than the average human. Huh. Interesting. I've never heard somebody talk about how they innately have, you know, body language that's good for communicating with animals as a whole. That's interesting observation about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Does that mean that being an animal trainer was something you'd always thought m- might be fun, be it a, a horse trainer or I don't know, d- did you dream of swimming with dolphins? <laughs> um, yeah, I horse training was something I thought about a lot as a kid, but um, I never really got any upper level experience because all of my experience was with very, very young horses or, you know, cranky school ponies. And so... I don't necessarily have the upper level skills that most people would want of a horse trainer, but I've always loved working with animals. Um, Always been hands-on trying to make them comfortable, trying to help them learn. And so, you know, when I found myself, you know, unemployed during the pandemic and I don't like not working as I think we've discovered most people don't. Um, so I really thought that it was an opportunity to learn. And so when I saw that the apprenticeship was, you know, open for students, I was like, well, I'm not doing anything right now. So I might as well actually follow what, you know, I had two childhood loves, animals and books. And I tried book publishing and it hadn't quite worked out. And then the apprenticeship course was right there. And I was like, it almost feels silly not to. Um, and I, you know, I knew school for the dogs. I knew the trainers. I, I knew that I was on board with, you know, what you guys teach. And I'd done four group classes and the good dog training course. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it was just like, well, I know what I'm going to be learning, but I also know this is going to be a really great mentorship opportunity with some really awesome humans. So was it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it, gosh, I I kind of miss office hours. You know, it's been a few weeks since, <laughs> since office hours, and I just I miss I miss the conversations. I miss I miss the learning. I miss like just everyone who works at School for the Dogs is a phenomenal human being, um, which is still amazing to me. But it, you know, I I miss digging into the nitty gritty and the what ifs and. Um, so what? How would you describe the program to someone who might be interested in becoming a dog trainer? 
The program is a really interesting uh, deep dive into animal behavior and um, almost it, it, it covers a lot of bases from, you know, emotions to body language to kind of the psychology of a lot of um, difficult conditions like a separation anxiety and dog reactivity. Um, and then, you know, puppy basics and setting dogs up for success. And so you cover so much material in a way where you can you really get to dig into it. And I, one of my favorite things about the course was, you know, in the written homeworks, in the readings, it wasn't just about learning for learning's sake. It was about understanding why. Why do dogs work this way? Why do humans interact with dogs this way? How, how does the dog exist in the home? And, you know, when you, when you have a group of people who are really interested in teaching you not only the facts of animal behavior, but why it is that way and what that means, it's it's more lifetime learning than textbook learning. And it's some of the most valuable learning I've ever done. Wow. Well, that's, that's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain a little bit what the breakdown was of, of the course? Um, and we should explain too, that you did it um, with uh, three others and, uh, and um, but two of those people were not in New York City because this was the first time that we attempted to do uh, it fully virtually for some people. Um, but yeah, could you explain just sort of the breakdown of of what it contained or how, how yeah. you explain it to someone? Yeah. So the course is a mix of, um, the, you know, the, the textbook learning element and then watching videos, um, then videos being like uh, pre-recorded lectures, right? Yeah, pre-recorded lectures and then like sometimes clips of trainers at School for the Dogs training. Um, and then there's also a hands-on element of you working with either your dog or a dog you have regular access to um, and trying to apply a lot of what you're learning. Um, and in a lot of those videos, um, the apprenticeship mentor would get really detailed feedback about, you know, your, your marker training and your clicker mechanics and your timing and your training choices and the way you're shaping and capturing and building behaviors. So there's also that like really great feedback on like what you're physically doing with a dog to try to help them learn. Um, and then we also had observation where we were, you know, watching other school for the dogs trainers working with clients. Um, and a lot of it was this the was uh, you know first sessions you know a trainer meeting the client for the first time and trying to understand what's going on with the client and the dog they've never met before and gather all of the information together and give feedback and teach skills that are immediately useful and so the combination of you know textbook learning and feedback on your you know hands-on work with a dog and watching other experienced trainers work with dogs all kind of mixes together into this really well-rounded learning environment. How did you feel about the shadowing? I'm curious. You did, did you do some of it in person and some of it virtually? I did some of it in person and some of it virtually. Everything that I could see at the school I did in person, but um, 
stuff that uh, where I was observing a trainer working in a client's home, I did virtually. And, um, and was some of it live and some of it pre-recorded? I think all of my observation was live. Mm -hmm. Um, well, my, my current idea is if we could get a handful of pre-recorded sessions that mm -hmm. then like everybody could watch the same pre-recorded session and then everybody could meet with the trainer afterwards for an hour to discuss it. That would be really cool. And I'd say some of the most interesting discussions were like where I was uh, viewing in person, other um, apprentices were viewing um, through Zoom. And so like we'd bounce questions off each other. And um, it's it's always really cool to have an apprentice ask a question you hadn't thought of, um, because in some ways, someone else's view of the same session can really educate you in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, as as we put together, as we have put together the program over the last few years, uh, it definitely felt like that was an important thing to include because you know I, having done the Karen Pryor Academy, which um, you know was a great experience to me, and you know completely like you know opened up my eyes to um, this amazing world and profession, etc. Uh, I however, left that program feeling like I had never seen anybody really teach anything uh, in a way that made sense to me. Um, not that I was, uh, you know, observing uh, trainers doing anything I would do. I just didn't really have a chance to observe trainers at all. And um, I didn't I didn't know where to start. And I really felt like and I, I think Kate, too, who's, you know, whose path was different than mine. But I think both of us, when we started uh, training felt like we were coming at it with absolutely no script and, and we're like having to, uh, you know, re reinvent the wheel. Um, and, uh, so I, I think any opportunity we can give, um, aspiring trainers to just watch other trainers doing an amazing job, <laughs> uh, must sort of help help you develop your own your own script, your own database, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, what was would what would you say was like the the most challenging part? Um, the most challenging part was some of the hands-on work with my dog. And because we'd done tricks one and then tricks two twice, the, the whole like sequencing of a bunch of different behaviors was a breeze. You know, he could do a sequence of 10 completely different behaviors with only one treat at the end in a blank. But when it came to the differentiation of, mm. you know, we were doing nose paw with a cone and all, you know, all I could do was say, was you know stand in a stationary position and say nose or paw and he would have to give the correct response immediately it's and it makes sense because i understand that m wanted us to do that because it really shows you how to build a behavior almost past fluency to like perfect um and i know that we do that because like in cases with like service dogs, you do need behavior at a far more fiddly and high um, level of fluency than you would with the average pet dog. But Parker and I got so frustrated with that exercise to the point where we actually had to take like a two week training break after that, where he was just like, don't take a cone out. 
Don't try to train me with my breakfast like you usually do. <laughs> I'm done. I will skip breakfast. Oh, yeah. he went on. He went on a food strike. <laughs> yeah, and that's something I've always done with him that I find is really helpful. Is I just I set aside. Okay, breakfast. We we do training, and for half of his kibbles, we're just going to train. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just a really short burst of structured. Um, set aside time for us to review or start something new each day. Well, that's interesting, though. I mean, the, I'm, there there's people who talk about pure positive training, which you know, I would say there's there's no such thing um, for you know lots of different reasons. There's no such thing, but there's a situation where even you know the best positive reinforcement training intentions became uh aversive huh yeah um and it it was really just you know it was it was stressful because like he could tell it was important to me and he could tell I was getting frustrated and I could tell he was getting frustrated and um so and he's he's a very interesting learner and it's something M pointed out we're very very few dogs like he he likes training and he likes learning and he likes working and shaping so much that he has a hard time disengaging from learning, even when he's not really like when he's like when he's done and he's not performing at his best. He's still like, but I'm doing the thing. We're doing the thing. This is our Aww. thing. This is the thing we do together and I'm not stopping. And it's my dog, sweet. my dog Amos was a little bit like that. Like, yeah. And it's very Terriers sweet. are the best. They, they are. They're, they're just really, they're really fun and really interesting and really amazing learners. Um, and if you want a dog who just always wants to learn with you, they're a really great way to go. Aww. But it was, you know, and, and that's something I always have to be mindful of and balance with him. Because, like, he will start doing displacement activities like scratching and uh, yawning while while training and he's still engaged and he still wants me to keep training with him but he's getting frustrated and he's doing this these displacement activities so I have to call it for him so that it, he doesn't start making it aversive for himself by just still trying and that's something humans do honestly you know we will push ourselves past where we're already burnt out and make things that we even things that we enjoy aversive that's so true yeah it's I wonder I wonder what that's is there a word for that in dog training I don't even know I don't know but it's definitely something I have to be careful with with him because even the best intentions and the best positive reinforcement sometimes you're just tired yeah just (laughs) overdo it um yeah even if even if it's something you love doing um well I'm excited to have you training with school for the dogs and um specifically excited to have you do some training with Poppy. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's such an interesting girl. She really is. I think you're going to just fall in love with her. Uh she is um very very sweet and very smart um but also uh a scaredy a scaredy cat, a scaredy dog for sure. Yeah. And um and very sensitive to, um, oh my God, I, I mean, I can't imagine what would have happened if she had ended up in the home of someone who like smacked her around um, because, yeah. because, you know, even, even, 
punishment, I think, doled out to her in the softest, quietest way would stress her out. <laughs> I'm excited to work with her because um, I just, just working with her that one day in day school, I could see how much just include uh, increasing her known behaviors and increasing her confidence that behaviors would pull back the anxiety and help her be her gregarious, snuggly self. Yes. Yes. She, she exactly. And, um, and I want to give that to her. So um, I'm, I'm very excited to start. Um, all right. So I, th- I think we covered a lot of great stuff here. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention? Um, I just as a front desk staff member, I want to give a shout out to the other front desk staff members because being the front line at a dog school is hard. It's hard work because you're dealing with a lot of clients um, who sometimes call in crying because they just don't know how to help their dog anymore. Um, and I have amazing team members and I just want to let everyone know that the school for the dog staff is amazing and very educated and always happy to talk through email on the phone to help everyone we can. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Dana and Jaden because they do an amazing job. Oh my God. They're so wonderful. As really, as are you. I mean, I, I think I, across the board, I think, uh, I feel, I don't know, just, I know Kate too. We both just feel stupidly lucky. <laughs> How wonderful our staff is. Um, all right. Then I, I have two, two last questions. One is um, if you could suggest one thing to someone who is listening, who is maybe thinking about becoming a dog trainer uh, and, you know, just just uh, as an aside, what's funny is I always think that like there must be a lot of people who rode horses as kids uh, who now live in urban environments and would love to have a horse and instead they get a dog and those are the people who... I bet a lot of those people would be like really amazing dog trainers Um, because a a dog is kind of like a a small horse that you can have in your home, right? (laughs) Um, Although there's less, less mucking of the stables that has to happen. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're still handling dog poop in bags, but um, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Horse people are always amazing animal people. And I, I would love to still be working in horses, but I live in Alphabet city and I, yeah cannot fit a horse in my two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> <laughs> so. If only. Uh, if someone's listening to this and is interested in possibly uh, pursuing a career as a dog trainer, I was wondering if you have yeah. uh, one tip. I mean, it could be a book or just a general suggestion or, or um, what would you what would you suggest to somebody who's just just starting to think about, hey, maybe I'd like to be a dog trainer? Try doing something with your dog or with a dog in your life that you've never tried before. Really step outside the box of um, what you have taught and what you have learned. You know, try it. Try a new sport. Um, try a new trick. Try um, and really see how you like engaging with that. Um, and see if you can get other people involved, and see if you can try to extend what you're learning to someone else. Um, just to get 
some hands-on, like, do I want to keep educating myself about dogs? Do I want to educate other people about dogs? Um, I know with, with my parents' dog, George, my dad and I built an entire agility course in the backyard from scratch because that was one of the things that made this dog light up. And I think that that's some of the most interesting training I've ever done. Um, and teaching my parents how to, you know, give agility guides and maneuver their dog through a course and teaching a dog that a seesaw is fun. Um, that dog now does the teeter in the backyard unprompted because he wants to, <laughs> which is always just precious. Um, but yeah, so really just step out of the box Try try something challenging and new that you've never tried before and try communicating that new thing to someone else. And I think that will tell you a lot about, you know, is continued dog learning and is teaching other people about dogs something that really matters to you. If you are in New York City, you can meet Iona Lee. She is often at our front desk. Also... For the month of February, we are offering free virtual consults. They will be with Iona Lee and a couple of our other recent professional course graduates. If you have questions about dog trainings or about our professional course, you can sign up for one of these at schoolforthedogs.com. If you would like to be notified as soon as we begin accepting applications, sign up at schoolforthedogs.com slash apprenticeship 2022. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Bill and Lizzie of Toast Garden for the amazing theme song. You can find Toast Garden at youtube.com slash toastgarden. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping at storeforthedogs.com, and you can learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com. You can also connect with other listeners by downloading our brand new app. Just visit schoolforthedogs.com community.